just give you a little bit of background about me. My name is Chesley Lunday. Yes, Chesley is my first name. Lunday is my last name. I always say it's the eighth day of the week. Lunday, L-U-N-D-A-Y. Yeah, so um, I spent five years in the military. Um, Air Force, as you can see, is, they call it the Chair Force. So it's us, all, all, of, uh, all of us smart guys go there so we don't have to work. So no, no, no I'm just playing. Any, any military guys in here? Well, thank you for your service. I hope you weren't in the Air Force. So <laughs> everybody's like, yeah. No, um, I uh, love church planting. God uh, called me to church planting around the last part of my uh, tenure in the military. Uh, whether it looks like it or not, I used to be 5'10", 175 pounds, 7% body fat until I injured my ankle playing basketball. And now I am... Um, 20 pounds down, but I used to be 240 and about 5'9 and a half. I kind of lean this way. So, uh, no. Um, anyway, so I, uh, I, God called me to the ministry and to church planning about my last few months in the military. Came back, figured out I had to get a job while you plant a church. And so, um, and somebody told me I wasn't mature enough to start a church yet. So, um, I had to do what I do best, and that's not take orders, so I started my own business. I gave orders that time, and uh, started my own business. I've owned a couple businesses. I matured, and uh, um, God had graciously has allowed me to uh, um, go into Omaha, move to Omaha in October, and lead a replant of a church that we've had. It's a young replant. It's only three years old, but they've declined steadily over the past couple of years, Went from 125, they're down to about 40. So um, I love church planting. I met Jonathan about a year and a half ago. We both are part of a church planting network called Heartland Interstate Strategy. There's a bunch of uh, ministries that have gotten together and have decided that they need to plant more churches along the I-29 corridor. So that's how Jonathan and I met over the course of a year and a half. We became really good friends. Jonathan has become a coach of mine. And Jonathan's now on my oversight board for our church at Change Life in Omaha. So you guys are directly affecting us because you allow your pastor to coach me. So I'm always asking for updates for Connection Church. Always. We love you in Omaha. We pray for you guys. We care about you and we care about you guys' pastor. We love Jonathan and Shelby, definitely. So I'll um, give you a little bit of background. I have a I have a beautiful wife named Beverly and two kids, one named Brixton and Keziah. Brixton's the one over there. They're saying cheese. This is the first time they actually got to play in snow because we're from Springfield, Missouri, and they only get ice. So, um, so Keziah's the little girl there. He's two years old. She's one. Um, they're ten and a half months apart, and yes, I do know what causes that. <laughs> so, hence the reason we have two kids, right? Ten and a half months apart. No. So, um... Like I said, I love Jonathan. He's an amazingly gifted speaker and pastor. Um, he loves you guys, and you're blessed to have a guy like him leading you on a weekly basis. Um, I always joke that pastors only work two hours a day. I think he puts four in. So, no. So, no, he loves you guys. He's good. Um, I love to be friends with him. I love that he's coaching me, and I appreciate you guys giving him the opportunity to do that for us. Um, and... Uh, just know that uh, we love you guys, all right? So um, raise your hands if you go, don't have a Bible. Any of you don't have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, we're going to get you one. Um, if you don't own one, 
This one is yours to keep. This is a gift to you from Connection Church, and we hope you use it well. Um, At my church, what we do is we stand up for the reading of the Word of God. We believe that we should give the Bible the honor it is due because it is the good it is the book that God wrote. And so if you guys would do that with me, if you guys just stand up as we read in Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 20. I would say it's a lot of verses, but you guys have been dealing with a lot of verses. 20, 20 uh, verses is a uh, child's play to you guys, right? So I'm going to start in uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. Sometime later, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this month is to be the first month of the year for you. Tell the people of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the head of each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for his family to eat. If any family is too small to eat the whole animal, they must share it with their next door neighbors. Choose either a sheep or a goat, but it must be a one-year-old male, and that has nothing wrong with it, no spot or no blemish. And it must be large enough for everyone to have some of that meat. Each family must take care of its animal until the evening of the 14th day of the month when the animals are to be killed. Some of the blood must be put on the two doorposts and above the door of each house where the animals are to be eaten. The night the animals are to be roasted and eaten together with bitter herbs and thin bread made without yeast. They call that unleavened bread. Don't eat the meat raw or boiled. The entire animal, including its heads, legs, and insides, must be roasted. Eat what you want that night, and the next morning burn whatever is left. When you eat the meal, be dressed and ready to travel. Have your sandals on, carry your walking stick in your hand, and eat quickly. This is the Passover festival in honor of me, your Lord. The same night, I will pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn son in every family and the firstborn male of all animals. I am the Lord, and I will punish the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses will show me where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When you, ha- when you then you won't be bothered by the terrible disasters I will bring on Egypt. <clears throat> Remember this day and celebrate it each year as a festival in my honor. For seven days you must eat bread without yeast, and on the first of these seven days you must remove all yeast from your homes. You, if you eat anything made with yeast during this festival, you will no longer be part of Israel. Meet together for worship on the first and seventh days of the festival. The only work you are allowed to do on either of these two days is that of preparing the bread. Celebrate this festival of thin bread as a way of remembering the day that I brought you you and your families and the tribes out of Egypt. And do this each year. Begin on the evening of the 14th day of the first month by eating bread without yeast. Then continue this celebration until the evening of the 21st day. During these seven days, no yeast is allowed in anyone's home, whether they are native Israelites or not. If you are caught eating anything made with yeast, you will no longer be part of Israel. Stay away from yeast. No matter where you live, no one is allowed to eat anything made with yeast. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, you're amazing and you're awesome. To have orchestrated the gospel so intricately like you have from beginning to end is not only a masterful work of art, but it's a a testament of your sovereignty. And so as we dissect your word today, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you have your way in this place. As we glorify Jesus through the study of Scripture, I ask that you let your message come to the forefront and have me step to the background. I ask that uh, as uh, 
you open all of our hearts to receive the message you have for us today, that you open our eyes and our ears so that we may perceive and we may understand what you would say to us, so that we may believe in you, maybe for the first time, or if for a long time, maybe more. And so, Father, we love you, and we thank you for sending us Jesus to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sorry if it sounds like I'm stuffed up. I am. I've had a severe sinus infection. We've been uh, renovating our basement, and we've had to grind concrete floors a thousand square feet with four-inch angle grinders. And so um, I've had a, I had a sinus infection, and it made it worse. So uh, bear with me a little bit. If I like lose my voice for a second, it's okay. We'll, we'll be back, I promise. So um, many of you guys know the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments, right? So some of you ha have even actually watched the movies. Maybe you watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Any of you guys old enough for that? All right, some of us live in the 21st century, so we watch Gods and Kings, uh, directed by Ridley Scott and played by Batman, right? Okay, I got to get my Batman plug in there. I'm a big Superman fan, or superhero fan, so uh, uh, I, I was just, Christian Bale played Moses. Anyways, uh, not entirely accurate, but um, we kind of know the history or the story of the Exodus. But some of you actually may be unaware of the entirety of this story in the Bible. So I'd like to give you some background to catch you up where, we be, where we're beginning today. Um, hundreds of years before the passage of our scripture took place, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham and told him that out of his lineage, God would create a great nation uh, out of his descendants. And it would, number, it would number more than the stars in the sky, and that great kings would uh, come from his line. But God warned Abraham that before his family would become a nation, they would be enslaved for some 400 years and be oppressed by a great nation. Abraham's grandson, great-grandson, actually, uh, um, Joseph, was abducted and sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And uh, he was sold into slavery to an Egyptian magistrate. He resided as a slave in Egypt for many years and through a major twist of events, wound up in front of the Pharaoh um, interpreting a dream the Pharaoh had. This dream ended up being a message from God telling the Pharaoh of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And Joseph being the only person that could interpret this dream Pharaoh knew that God was with him. So seeing that Joseph was intelligent, the Pharaoh put him in second of command and charged him to make sure that the kingdom was prepared against the calamity that lay ahead. Any of you guys like taxes? No? No? Then you guys would hate Joseph. Because during the seven years of good times, Joseph taxed 50% of everybody's income. But seven years later, calamity hits. Famine that's widespread across the land, ends up um, overtaking the land. But the 50% taxes went to welfare for throughout all the people. And so this famine was so severe that uh, Joseph's brothers actually were affected by hundreds of, miles, hundreds of miles away in Canaan. So they decide that they're going to uh, um, go to Egypt and buy some grain to feed their family. So... Um, they wind up in Egypt, and lo and behold, who's in front of them? Joseph. They don't know it, 
but they find out through a weird turn of events, God uses uh, the famine to reconcile Joseph to his brothers and, in the meantime, bring the family to Egypt to reside there for the next 400 years. So we get to the book of Exodus, and uh, Exodus begins with the statement that a new pharaoh arises in Egypt who does not know Joseph. And we see that the population of the Hebrews has rapidly grown. And so this pharaoh, who feels threatened by the Hebrews, uh, decides to enslave them to curb the population. Apparently, they didn't know what causes uh, two kids in ten and a half months, right? So you guys can laugh. It's funny. So, no. Uh, anyways, um, did it? That was a dead one. All right. So, anyways, um, the the population expanded even more. The sl- they thought slavery would curb the population, but they grew even larger. And so the Pharaoh distraught decides to do what the only thing he knows left without eradicating everybody. He decides to kill the um, the firstborn male of every, or not the firstborn male of every family, but every male that was born to a family from then on. And so he ordered that these babies be fed to crocodiles in the Nile. I don't know about you, but I'm a pansy. So like uh, my, my wife watches river monsters and I see crocodiles and I was stationed in Mississippi and there was an alligator on the 13th hole once and they're like, don't go around it. It's a mom. And so it's angry. I just don't like reptiles with teeth. And so um, I can imagine how scary this is. But here's the deal. These mothers love their, love their babies so much that um, to have a chance for survival, they would take them in baskets and put them in the weeds along the riverbanks and uh, hoping that a crocodile wouldn't get them, hoping that nobody would hear them. And so um, there was a, a mother that did this to a child. And... Um, and the basket floated away and right into the arms of the Pharaoh's daughter. The Pharaoh's daughter actually uh, liked the baby, saw that he was pleasant to the eyes, meaning he's cute, girls. And, uh, and so here's the deal. If you're the king's daughter, you get to play with live baby dolls, right? Don't mind the details of uh, getting up at night or uh, changing poopy diapers. We got slaves for that. I'm going to get to play with them a couple hours a day, and then I'll hand them off to the nurses. Well, uh, in the wisdom of the baby's mother, um, she ends up um, becoming the nurse for this baby. This baby's name is Moses. And so Moses grows and has learned, uh, learns as the Egyptians uh, did. And yet, since his mother, who was a Hebrew, was his nurse, he learned also the ways of the Hebrews. And uh, he learned that he was part of that heritage and so he learned who he really was and that God had chosen the Hebrews as a nation unto himself but that it was only a matter of time and so when Moses grew this prompted Moses when he saw a man uh, when he saw a man getting abused uh, a Hebrew man by an Egyptian he went to defend him and actually murdered the Egyptian and so he had to run away he was a fugitive he ran to the backside of the wilderness into the land of Midian and uh, wound up decades uh, in Midian tending sheep. And then God showed up one day. While he was tending sheep, God came to him in a burning bush and said, you need to go back to Egypt and you you need to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. 
I've heard their prayers, and it's time. It's time to redeem them. And so, Moses reluctantly obeys. And God tells Moses that the Pharaoh would refuse and that God would judge the nation of Egypt and uh, their false gods as a result. God would rain judgment down on Egypt through ten plagues. And so this is where we picked up our story. Uh, God is preparing Israel for the final plague. In my church, we're going through a series called Gospel Culture. And so um, we want to know what it looks like to be a gospel-centered culture in Omaha, as you guys do here in Sioux Falls. And gospel, uh, so we need to know what a gospel culture is, and we need to know how to create a gospel culture, and what does a gospel culture look like. And so anthropologists and sociologists have come up with this definition of what culture actually is. They say it's the sum total of ways of living built up by a group of human beings and transmitted from one generation to another. Sociologists have categorized um, culture into seven distinct elements. We're not going to go through all seven. We are at our church. But today I want to focus on customs and traditions. This is the first sociological element of culture. Every culture is built up by a worldview. Uh, this view of the world is the foundation on which people's culture, cultural structure is built. The elements of culture, like customs and traditions, are the bricks in which it is formed. Every culture is born out of this worldview and how the world works. So when we contrast the views of a gospel culture with Western society or Americans' culture, uh, by using Israel's contrasting uh, belief system with that of Egypt's as a launching point, we find that gospel culture and American culture are irreconcilable. So we are challenged to become a people of a new culture, of a gospel culture, and to put away those beliefs and views that are opposed to the culture formed from the principles and commands of the authoritative Word of God, the Bible. And so, for thousands of years, Christianity has infiltrated uh, countless cultures and over time has been proclaimed by disciples and followers of Jesus, contextualizing the gospel for those who are hearing it for the first time. And so, um, with each culture having different customs and traditions, a transcendent culture um, should be next to impossible to achieve. But, when the Holy Spirit's involved, it works. And so, the customs and traditions of Christianity have endured the ages and continually uh, unify the church across the course of two millennia. However, two, um, two traditions have risen above the rest communion and baptism and they have become the preeminent traditions of the christian faith as they were both commanded by christ and so today i want to focus on communion as the first defining tradition of the gospel culture you guys take communion every once in a while so i kind of want this to be a primer for the next time you you take it so you actually know what it means and what it means throughout the entirety of the bible the fact that the gospel was proclaimed and had, there was a plan from the beginning of time to the end and we see it when we take communion, it's a, symbol, it's a symbol of God's work throughout humanity from age to age. All right? And so, they, communion distinguishes itself from the rest. And so, uh, it has its roots in the text we're studying today. God's getting ready to save Israel throughout the judgment of Egypt. But God's judgment is perfect, right? So, Perfect judgment doesn't differentiate between a huge 
obnoxious, ugly sin and my little cute pet sin that we don't really want to call a sin because it's so cute, right? Little dog, like, it's still sin. God's judgment doesn't, uh, doesn't differentiate the two. We have the big ones like lying, cheating, stealing, uh, adultery. We also have gossip and slander and uh, backbiting and strife, right? That we don't want to, oh, I was just talking about the way the work went today. No, you're gossiping about your neighbor and your coworker. You should stop. That's, that's a sin too, and God doesn't differentiate from the two. So God's, God's judgment overtakes all sin, big or small. And so this is a problem for Israel They need a way out because when God's judgment falls, it will fall on Israel just like it will fall on Egypt because they too need salvation because they too are sinful. They too will be judged if God's judgment is perfect unless he provides a way out, a scapegoat, if you will. So God in his mercy makes a way for them to be saved, a literal scapegoat. It requires two things, though. Belief and obedience. Belief in God's power and obedience to His decree. One without the the other doesn't work. If you won't obey, you don't believe. And you don't believe if you don't obey. So, by refusing God's order, they would have sealed their fate along with the Egyptians. Thankfully, this time, Israel believes and obeys they took the lamb and they slaughtered it they painted it on their doorpost with its blood and had the lamb roast that evening with their unleavened bread and this is the first passover feast and a clear picture of salvation by the blood of the lamb they're saved from judgment and death by the blood of the lamb the israelites are saved from judgment and death does this sound familiar It should. The Bible calls Jesus the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul calls on the church to get rid of the leaven which is among us because we are already unleavened. For Christ, and I'll explain the unleavened bread later, but for Christ is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed. Church, my first point is Jesus is the greater Lamb. The picture of Passover is a clear indication of the future gospel we have received and that Israel would ultimately look forward to. So what's the gospel? We see what culture is, but what's the gospel? And I know you're a church that loves the gospel. I know Jonathan talks about it every week, but I'm going to explain it here as brief as I possibly can. The gospel is the good news that God created humanity who ended up rebelling and turning away from him, and like Ecclesiastes said, fled chasing many schemes. That biggest scheme, namely, is running to ourselves as our own object of worship. And God in his love and mercy came to earth in the man, Jesus Christ, and took on the just punishment for our rebellion so that those who believe in him would become children of God. Jesus has become our scapegoat. We've been redeemed, purchased from sin and death. We've been bought with the precious blood of jesus but jesus being perfect and divine was not utterly cast down by death the father raised jesus up from the dead and made 
belief in him, the only way by which men can be saved. And so doing, we become followers of Jesus. And we're called to obey the commands, his commands. Commands to live in a world as ambassadors for a kingdom which will someday be established on earth and rule the world of men to be co-laborers for the creation of a gospel culture. Gospel culture is initiated around the Passover. And what we know today as communion is directly derived from this moment in history. Passover has been practiced every year since this night in our scriptural text. Just as this passage says they must eat and remember the day the Lord brought them up out of slavery, this has been a testament for them to know the greatness of Yahweh, the creator of the universe, and his day of salvation. Salvation for the Jews, by God's choosing, came at the hands of a spotless lamb. A lamb that became a scapegoat for the sins of Israel. Likewise, we are partakers in a greater Passover with a greater lamb who not only covers the sin of Israel, but all those who believe on his name. Jesus has become the scapegoat for the world. Jesus has become the scapegoat for the world. So when I was 10 years old, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and they like to do things out of the box. Um, and so they decided to uh, practice Passover one year, and so we brought in a Messianic Jew, and we had, uh, we had the Passover Seder. Now, the Passover Seder is the meal that we uh, use, uh, or Jews would use, uh, during the Passover. And it's liturgy, literally liturgy with food. Seder means arrangement or order. It's these symbolic foods uh, aid in the retelling of the story of the Passover known as Haggadah, which means the telling. The Seder plate, which I have up on the screen for you here in a second, um, has six dishes around a bowl of salt water, and each dish symbolizes a part of the Passover story. Now, i got to give you a little bit of history about me. i got a little bit of a texture issue so um, I don't like vegetables and fruits, which you can tell, right? So, uh, no, I end up, uh, I end up like, I juice, I got a Vitamix or so I like make it a smoothie and that's how I do it. But like eating them, uh, it's just not, not good for me. So imagine a 10-year-old boy seeing that on his plate. And like, we're doing what? Yeah, so we took this and I'll, I'll, I'll give you what this looks like or what these are. So parsley, which is dipped into the salt water near the, the beginning of the Seder to represent the growth and fertility of the Jewish people in Egypt. Um, that little thing that looks like a hunk of mud on their plate, that's apple wine and nut mixture that represents the mortar used by the Jewish slaves in building their storehouses of Egypt. It symbolizes the toil and labor of the Israelites. Um, they have kosher dill pickles right there as their bitter herb. We had horseradish. And for a kid that doesn't like vegetables, that's bad news. Um, but it clears out your nasal passages really, really well. And so um, the bitter herbs, like we had horseradish, it symbolizes the harshness of uh, slavery Israel endured. And so you see this root right here. That's ginger. We didn't have ginger. We had, uh, we had uh, what do they call it, horseradish root. You're supposed to have an indelible herb, one that you can't actually swallow. You're supposed to uh, put it on your tongue and let it, and it, it automatic gag reflex. Like, it's horrible. But it's supposed to be, I guess, right? Because 
Um, this herb symbolizes the atrocity of infanticide. For a kid that has a problem with vegetables, this cemented it. I, I got to say. And so uh, another one that they have on here is the roasted lamb shank bone that symbolizes the outstretched arm of the Lord in his mighty deliverance. Might I say that a bone without meat should be a sin, right, men? Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, what? We, we're missing the good stuff, right? No, but it, it has a point. It's the outstretched arm of the Lord, and it symbolizes his mighty deliverance of the Jewish people. And it, a roasted egg that symbolizes the lamb that was slaughtered at the temple during the season of Passover. This one came later. After the temple was destroyed, they, uh, they couldn't sacrifice lambs. So in their place, they did a, a roasted egg symbolizing the lamb that was to be sacrificed. And then right in the middle is a saltwater bowl, which represents the sweat and tears of the Israelite slaves and the splitting of the Red Sea. So the Jews eat these as they retell the story in Exodus 12. And there's 15 steps to the Seder as the Israelites uh, were redeemed on the 15th day of the month. So they used four cups of wine uh, during the Seder as well, remembering the four promises of God given to Moses in Exodus uh, chapter 6, 6 and 7, and I have those for you. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The cup of sanctification. I will bring you out. The cup of deliverance. I will free you. The cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with, and with great acts of judgment. And the cup of restoration. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Jewish tradition instructs that these cups be filled with red wine as to symbolize the blood of the Lamb. It's also a representation of the covenant that God had with Israel, a covenant that was set in stone in the Torah and sealed with the yearly sacrifice of the Lamb, atonement for the sins of the people and the remembrance of their salvation from Egypt. Once again, we're confronted with a familiar motif. And this is my second point. Jesus' blood is a greater covenant. Israel turned away from God continuously throughout their existence. And by Jesus' day, were no longer a nation because of the repeated rebellion to the covenant they made with God. They broke their covenant and judgment was imminent. And we see how well that worked for Egypt, right? But God is in the salvation business. And, God, and judgment is is only used for the means of salvation. Judgment is always a call back to Him. So God made a new covenant, and this time, that would be greater than the old. This time, it would be for the whole world. He would take the judgment on Himself. He would shed His own blood. He would give everything up. All we had to do was believe and obey. Sins would be forgiven. Iniquities would be blotted out. Man could partake in communion with God once again. Where the Lamb's blood for Israel was shed for a few, Jesus' blood was shed for the many. Where a nation would be saved with the blood of the Lamb, 
Jesus' blood saves all nations. This is the greater covenant. So the first ten steps of the Seder retells the story of Exodus as they eat the Seder plate and drink the first two cups of wine. And the eleventh step is a meal to be enjoyed in others' company. And so the host, after the meal, takes the unleavened bread, which is called matzah, and he breaks it and recites, Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth the true bread from heaven. Sound familiar? I am the bread of life. Right? Jesus says that. Now, in Scripture, matzah is sometimes called the bread of affliction because it was born out of affliction, the affliction of slavery. The Jews didn't have much time to prepare it so, uh, because of their slavery, and so the bread had no time to rise, and matzah has become a token of freedom for the Jews. And so in verses 15 and 20, we see that the Jews were instructed to eat this bread without yeast for seven days as, their, as a picture of their deliverance from the corrupting influences of the world and the response to the re- redemption of the Lord. He wants us to be separated from the world. He wants us to be unleavened, unstained by sin. We are showing, the, uh, by eating of the bread, we're showing that we are separated because of the covenant and because of the blood of the lamb and so in the 13th step of the seder the host takes the blood or the cup of redemption which signifies the redemption of the lord through the blood of the lamb that was painted on the door frames of the israelites and he lifts the cup and he praises the creator of the universe for the fruit of the vine and then the people drink people the exodus is by far the fundamental event in Jewish history. Everything in their culture wraps around this event every year, and we are coming up on it. Everything in Exodus is commemorated by this event, and it reminds Israel of the covenant God had with them, and it reminds them that it was God who redeems, and the God who saves, and the God who restores. But Passover was always a festive and joyous time for the people of Israel. And so, if you could with me for a few minutes, imagine some 1,500 years after the Exodus. The Seder plate wasn't as pretty, and it wasn't as ordered as it is today. There wasn't an egg on it, and like I said, there's, there was actually no bare lamb bone, which is good, because we want the meat, right? But most of the other elements were the same. And so, you would walk into a room where the Seder was to be performed, and ex- expecting a lowly slave to wash your feet and then you would begin between the laughing and conversing of that wonderful time remembering the salvation and freedom that god had done for you so the disciples were feeling this same feeling of adulation the same feeling of excitement when they entered the upper room for the passover with jesus and good jews love this time of year It's almost like Christmas or New Year's, or for us Americans, the Super Bowl, right? My Cardinals lost, so I, eh, whatever. But uh, during that time, Jesus starts acting weird. He becomes the slave that washes the disciples' feet. And they're having fun, I'm sure, but they see Jesus becoming more somber 
as the moments draw near to his crucifixion. And we read the account, and the disciples are aloof to it. They might have thought he identifies deeply with Exodus because he's a good rabbi, and so he's trying to be serious about this moment because we should be serious. Little did they know that Jesus is about to blow the whole meaning of the Exodus wide open. And it wasn't until a relatively short time later that the 12 disciples would actually understand what Jesus is about to say. So if you could, turn your Bibles to Luke 22, 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he had said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to him, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Church, my final point is Jesus is the greater bread. He is the blood of affliction. He broke His body for you and I. His blood was painted on the rugged post of those cross, just as the spotless Lamb's blood was painted on the doorpost. According to the Gospel and According to the Gospels, in the order of the Passover, it would have been the cup of redemption where he made his remarks. The cup of redemption is poured out for you. The cup of redemption, the promise of God that he will redeem his people with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Paul told us to get rid of the leaven. Because we're already unleavened. Yeast represents sin and death. Actually, yeast uh, catalyzes the fermentation process, which is actually the process of decay. He's allegorically shouting at us that Christ is our perfect matzah, our bread of life, who is unleavened and unmarred by sin. And for those of us that are in Christ, we're given His perfection in the eyes of God. So now we must rid ourselves of the yeast of sin in our lives as the Hebrews were instructed to rid themselves of the yeast in their home. This signifies that we are children of God just as they were children of Israel. This is the preeminent tradition of the gospel culture. In our aim to glorify Jesus, we must understand the true meaning of communion. And it's this a reaffirming of our faith in Christ and the proclamation of a new covenant made possible by the crucifixion until Jesus returns. And He will return. I told you there were four cups in the Seder, correct? Well, Jesus actually refuses to drink the final cup, the cup of restoration. And He gives the, the disciples a promise. And His promise is that He will one day finally drink that cup when He reigns on earth with men again in the presence of the Father. And we will drink the cup of restoration together. Some of you may be here today 
and you just know that you are supposed to submit your life to the one who gave his for you. You know you are supposed to respond to the urge that's inside of you. And you're supposed to make a commitment to follow Jesus. You must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. And if that is you, I'd like to pray for you today. For those of us that are followers of Christ, this may have been an eye-opener for you, and you don't exactly know how to respond. Some of you may be emotional right now, and I invite you as we worship for these next few minutes to find someone to pray with you. Maybe kneel at your seat if that's what you need to do. Seek God's face. Maybe some of you have never lifted your hands to heaven. See, worship of Jesus demands an emotional response just as an intellectual one. For we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. So today, I want you to feel free to worship God with everything you have in you today as we sing this final song. Because Jesus deserves it. He took our judgment to give us redemption. And He became our bread of affliction so we don't have to be afflicted any longer. So show Him today what that means to you. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We appreciate the fact that You had a plan from the beginning to bring Jesus as our Passover lamb to fix what we wrong and to have communion, communion with us again. I pray if those, are, those of us are here are being urged by the Holy Spirit to repent of our wrongdoing, of our independent lives apart from You, that You, uh, you confirm that within them. I ask that You... Uh, you give them the strength to confess that you're Lord and Savior over their lives. And I ask that you guide them to become a follower of Jesus, putting the old life and the old ways in the past and now moving forward in a new direction towards God and not away. For those of us that have been Christians for a long time, sometimes when we uh, worship we do so out of, out of just a pattern, a way of doing things that doesn't have, a, uh, doesn't have any other meaning outside of this is just what we always do. I ask that you renew our first love. I ask that you give us a broader picture of what you've done in the gospel that will drive us to our knees and that will cause us to lift our hands to heaven and the next time we take communion we know that we're reaffirming the covenant that you so graciously gave to us while we were still enemies of you we thank you that you are the god who saves you are the god that comes down for us and that even though we were yet enemies and we don't search for you you came and found us and you made us a people and you made us a family, and you made us a kingdom with a gospel culture. 
I thank you for everything you've done and the gift of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.